Hello and welcome to Pali, the Hindu's weekly discussion podcast on current and relevant topics. I'm PJ George, your host for this week. Australia's new news media and digital platforms mandatory bargaining code will force platforms like Facebook and Google to pay for linking to news content from that country's publishers. While both the tech giants initially took a hard stance against the law with Google threatening to exit from Australia and Facebook banning news from its feed in the country, they ultimately struck deal with the publishers. The Australian law is being seen as one of the early shots fired in the coming battle by countries to regulate tech giants and to take back some of the control they have on global communications. But is it an ideal regulatory model? Would regulating the platforms affect free speech? Is regulating platforms the way to save the news media business that is in the doldrums? To discuss these topics and questions we have with us here, Dwayne Winsack, who is Professor, School of Journalism and Communications, Carleton University, Canada, and Jeff Jarvis, Director, Tom Knight Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism at City University of New York's Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. Welcome, Dwayne, and welcome, Jeff. Let's start with a basic question on what is happening here. When Facebook decided to block Australians from posting or accessing news on its platform, It said that the coming Australian law fundamentally misunderstood the relationship between it and the publishers and that it was more of an enabler for news rather than an adversary. However, by all indications, Facebook and Big Tech's honeymoon period with news publishers has been over for quite some time in many markets with publishers cribbing about the poor benefits of being on the platform. So is Facebook overplaying its benefits to news media? Or is it that legacy publishers are failing to understand the new media landscape? Dwayne, why don't you go first? Okay. Well, you know, I think uh, Facebook's uh, response is is an interesting one. And it's, you know, we've seen this stuff coming down the pipe for the last five years. There's been increasing concern about the dominance that Facebook and Google have over online advertising. And, you know, the response to Australia is quite interesting. You know, over the last two, three years now, you know, we've seen Zuckerberg go from opposing uh, regulation to openly openly welcoming it. And the same thing with some of the other uh, big tech uh, giants like uh, Apple and uh, Google and uh, Amazon as well. But the thing is, is every time we see a concrete proposal uh, on the table, like we have here in the Australian uh, case, they line up and they fight it tooth and nail. They either try to derail the effort completely or to defang it. And I think we've seen that uh, playing out in Australia uh, very much with the threats that Facebook and Google have uh, uh, laid out over the last month. And only at the very last minute did we see them kind of break ranks and Google kind of come to the table and sign up with these deals for better or for worse. And I don't think that this is a golden uh, uh, situation here by any means. I think there's a lot of uh, uh, kind of black hats in the ring, right? But we saw Facebook go to the wall uh, with its intransigence here with the news uh, ban uh, blackout uh, last week. And I think it's a very bad look uh, on Facebook. And I think it has also redounded very badly on its public policy positions and its public image. Okay, thanks, Dwayne. Jeff, what is your take on this? My take is is rather blunt. I think this is a case of Rupert Murdoch's blackmail of technology. This is a link tax. No, it's not a tax on each link, but those who link must pay a fee. That Ergo makes it a link tax. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the creator of the web and with it, the internet link, has testified to Australian legislators that this breaks the web, and it indeed does. Uh, It sets a terrible precedent. It is also true, I think, to your question, that the platforms are right when they say they bring value to the publishers. They send the publishers people, us, readers. And it's up to the publishers whether they can build a valuable relationship of trust over time. And if they don't, it's totally in the publisher's hands. This has been a one-sided discussion because 
the links to the publishers have not been given a market value. Google in its earliest days decided not to charge for position in search proper, only in ads. Yahoo was charging for search position, but Google chose not to. Thus, it doesn't sell those links. Thus, it never created a market value for them. But it's unquestionable that both Google and Facebook send tremendous value to the platforms. Now, the next question on the other side of the equation here, is news valuable to the platforms? Barely. On Google, they started Google News, but have no ads on there. Google's part of search, and that's fine. It has a place, but news is a, is a very small part of search. On Facebook, fewer than 4% of the traffic goes to news. Uh, and now in Australia, none. Um, now, both platforms have started news features, the news showcase on Google, the news tab on Facebook. And for this, they are willing and have shown to be willing around the world to license full content for those showcases. But it's my belief that that is not really buying news. Instead, it is a payoff to try to get these publishers to stop cashing in their political capital for the sake of buying protectionist legislation from their governments. And so what Facebook did here was say, we're willing to pay you for some news, but we're not willing to pay we're not willing to be part of this law that says that those who link must pay. And so in that sense, Facebook called the bluff of Murdoch and his Pauls. And we'll see what happens now. I think this is bad all around. Uh, it's bad for the web. It's bad for the internet. It's bad for news. It's an unfortunate episode where Rupert Murdoch, who I consider the most venal influence in democracy in the English-speaking world, Canada, bless it aside, has used his media monopoly in Australia to make this happen. Okay, thanks, Jeff. I think you have gone into one aspect of what I wanted to ask next about the Australians and their code. The PM, Scott Morrison, had to say about the tech companies, uh, they may be changing the world, but that doesn't mean they should run it. Okay, this is in tune with the global falling out with the tech giants. However, as you mentioned, there has also been criticism that driving force behind this code is media mogul Rupert Murdoch, who has had this long and bitter struggle with the tech platforms over content. Now, the code itself, is it a legitimate attempt to regulate tech platforms vis-a-vis -vis news, or is it just a way of diverting some cash to uh, media companies. You did mention the link tax, but uh, can you elaborate on that? Yes, I think it's an effort by Murdoch to try to get some money. Murdoch wins either way here. If he gets paid, he has some money in his pocket. If take Facebook dropping all news off the platform, Murdoch is still fine. He owns 70% of the print news market in Australia. He has the known brands. It's a duopoly in media in Australia. Who gets hurt most in this case is anybody who wants to uh, bubble up from the land of startups and create competition for either. But let's keep in mind that Rupert Murdoch has been trying to be in the internet business for years and he failed. He bought Delphi Internet, where, by the way, full disclosure, I worked for a br very brief while in 94, just as the web was starting. And that's what, in fact, caused the problems is they didn't know what to do with the web. He bought MySpace in 2005, which was a disaster for him. So he wanted to be Mark Zuckerberg. But Murdoch gave up on the internet. He also pretty much gave up on advertising. He is the greatest believer in paywalls out there. And he thinks his content has value and should be paid for, which is a fine position to have. But in this case, again, what the platforms are doing is not taking his content or his soul. They're using a headline or a snippet to link to him, to link to the publishers in Australia and around the world. This is really bad legislation and badly thought of. I get very nervous to your larger point about regulating the internet because I believe it's very early days. I'm working on a book on the end of the, Guten, of the Gutenberg age, and it took 150 years before anyone thought to invent a newspaper. It took 250 years before the business model of print was well-established with copyright. Uh, we're in very early days here. I think it's too early to think that we know what the internet is. Now, having said that, I was part of a transatlantic working group on content moderation and freedom of expression, and I do back a flexible framework for regulation that the group 
uh, proposed. I think there are ways to start to have a discussion about regulation against certain outcomes. But in this case, no. In this case, even if you decided that you should tax the platforms more, then who's to say that that money should go to entitled publishers? Why wouldn't that money go to education or healthcare or internet access for the poor? There's a lot of other places I can see it going than Rupert Murdoch in Australia or the hedge funds that control the largest media company in Canada and also in the U.S. Uh, that's quite an interesting take, uh, uh, Jeff. Uh, Dwayne, what do you think about this? Well, you know, I think uh, Jeff is right on the Murdoch uh, situation. I mean, there's absolutely uh, no doubt that the inspiration for the digital platform inquiries that have led to this news bargaining code come out of a kind of unholy alliance between the current government and uh, the major media groups with Murdoch's uh, News Corn Sky at the front in 2017. And it's a very uh, interesting situation in which at the time the government passed media ownership uh, rules that actually loosened the restrictions on cross-media ownership in the country and was all, and therefore was already a huge boon for the existing large players because it allowed them to bulk up even more. But there was some political horse trading going on between the various players involved and the different political parties involved. And the upshot was that in return to get Murdoch and Kerry Stokes' blessing uh, for this new law, loosening media ownership rules in the country, the government made two commitments. And those two commitments were to hold a public inquiry into the platforms and another into public service broadcasters like the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and SBS. So that's the origins of the digital platform inquiry. The idea that it was backed by the major media moguls in Australia from the get-go, I think, badly tarnishes uh, the effort and shows the extent to which the local media companies have been able to set the policy agenda in the country and raises all sorts of questions that I think Jeff has just done a very good job at laying out some of them. That said... I think there are some other issues here uh, that are at play. And if we can get by these, the tainted origins of this inquiry and see that, in fact, there are decent people that have contributed to this policy process and that the Australian process is one of many such processes that are taking place around the world. I mean, my head spins trying to keep track of the number of efforts that are taking place, including in your country, George, in India, but around the world in the last three to five years, there have been at least 90 such public inquiries or congressional inquiries, some kind of inquiry into the platforms and what we should do about their growing clout. And I think that the digital platform inquiry in Australia also reflects that, that trend. And what this tells us is that the days of voluntaristic self-regulatory efforts are over. And this is what the Canadian government itself is saying, that we do not want to rely anymore on these voluntaristic philanthropic exercises from the large uh, platforms. Instead, we want mandated regulatory requirements, and we are going to build a regulatory framework to deal with it. And this is something that we see with the history of all communications and uh, media services. We saw it with the origins and development of telecommunications from the telegraph and the telephone uh, in the 19th century and its eventual kind of uh, regulation in the early 20th century by most countries in Europe and in North America and some other countries around the world. In broadcasting, the 1920s and the 1930s were the era in which regulation of broadcasting was formalized. I think what we've seen with the increased centralization of the internet and the kind of transformation of the internet from the internet of peer-to-peer -peer communications and science to the internet of entertainment, in which we have a small number of global internet giants at the helm, that those companies have actually been rewiring the internet and rewiring the internet in a way that has created a very, very dirty online advertising system that is also highly concentrated and vertically integrated into Google and with 
Google and Facebook controlling the currency upon which the online advertising system uh, works, that is audience data. And that data is largely considered to be fraudulent, corrupt, and barely usable, but it is the currency upon which the whole system now works. And so the Australian case, and I'll try to wrap this up in just a second, the Australian case tries to deal with these two realities. The first is that we've got a highly concentrated internet with Google, uh, for example, accounting for 95% of search queries in the country. In other countries, it's between 85 and 90%. Around the world, it's around 90%. Facebook's taking in 61%. Uh, or Google and Facebook together, kind of 61% of the country's online advertising in Canada. It's 80% in the United States, it's two thirds, you know. So these are high levels of concentration in terms of time people spend online, about two fifths of people's time in Australia, the United States and Canada spent on Google and Facebook uh, related sites. So, you know, these are the realities. And the last point I wanna make here is that the Australian proposed code deals with these realities. And the real crown jewel, I think, in the uh, the bill is the code of conduct that would basically enable the uh, Australian uh, Commerce and Competition Commission to compel Google and Facebook to carry certain designated Australian news services for some yet to be specified negotiated fee. But also that would do things like require Facebook and Google to give news sites a heads up notice of any major changes that are taking place to also open up their algorithmic black boxes and the data sets that they use to underpin the advertising uh, market to regulatory uh, scrutiny and basically open up the algorithm, the black box algorithms to uh, regulators to have a peek inside. And there's also the promise too that this whole setup could be expanded to include other players should they be shown to have a dominant market position. And there's hints that, that the next in line here could be Apple's App Store. Can I ask you a question, Dwayne? Sure, Jeff. Because you've done so much more research and such good research about the, the worldwide regulatory uh, congressional inquiry uh, landscape. Uh, last week, we also saw former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, testify before the Senate. And I watched his testimony. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, as he is attempting to get the legislature there to start a uh, royal commission into media monopoly. In this case, it means Murdoch. And Malcolm Turnbull, another former uh, prime minister from the opposite side of the political spectrum, is joining in on this. 500,000 mm -hmm. Australians signed this. So there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a media monopoly going on in the media biz uh, as well. And so if you if you ended up with this idea of a commission in Australia requiring that media be carried by the platforms, not only do they have to pay for it, they have to carry it. First, mm -hmm. that bothers me because that's compelled speech is not free speech. I could imagine in Hungary, them requiring Facebook to carry the government. In Poland, there's a law going through the process now, legislation going through the process that would require all content that's legal to be carried. So they'd be compelled to carry speech. That bothers me, number one, but then number two, when Murdoch is the primary player in the country, and as an American, I'm very resentful of what Murdoch has done to my country, then to further have a law engineered by Murdoch that compels the platforms to carry Murdoch when Murdoch already has a monopoly. So my question finally is, do you think the Rudd-Turnbull Royal Commission on Media Monopoly, on good old-fashioned print monopoly, will have a role in this at all. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point, Jeff. And I think this is the big problem that we have in this discussion. And it drives me absolutely batshit crazy um, to see so many people so single-mindedly zero in on the digital platforms as if they are the source of all the world's evil. And they turn a complete blind eye to the telecommunications, internet access, mobile wireless, and media oligopolies that rule in one country after another, yours, mine, and Australia. And I know very well the uh, Rudd and Turnbull initiative to hold an inquiry into Australia's media concentration and their devastating critique of how Murdoch has uh, basically corrupted the Australian news media system and poisoned democracy in the country. And I've 
fully supportive of this. In fact, I included uh, this this idea in a piece that I wrote last week in a newspaper here in Canada, the National Observer, right? So to my mind, one of the things that's, you know, really problematic about this debate that we're having is that people seem to have lost their minds in terms of the single-minded myopic crusade against the platforms that they are waging, all right, and turning a blind eye to the fact that the Murdoch uh, News Corps system, and in uh, your country, you know, <laughs> most significantly, is the hub of a network propaganda system Amen. that works in hand-in-hand hand with the online platforms to corrupt the public sphere, to corrupt the political culture that a democracy needs to survive. And somehow people have glommed on to a one-sided lambasting of the platforms and given the Murdochs of the world, the uh, private equity funds behind a lot of the newspapers and news media groups in your country and mine, Jeff, and in uh, Australia, you know, a free pass. I can't believe the intellectual dishonesty there. But now let me go down the other side. And this is where I, I'm really trying to work hard uh, at this and try to come up with a, you know, a, a kind of a, a comprehensive, if you will, a judicious view of all the bits and pieces that make up this very complicated system. And so when you call must carry compelled speech or common carriage compelled speech, I say no. You know, I say common carriage, and one has to be very careful uh, here because I don't think the idea to make platforms common carriers is a is a good one. All right, but moving somewhere in a direction that the Germans are, you know, something like fair carriage, and a little bit of what the Australians are doing in terms of must carry a certain range of public interest oriented journalism. I think these ideas in the round are decent ones, and they are not antithetical to democratic societies. We have a long tradition in the United States, in Canada, and in Western European democracies, as well as Australia, to have similar regimes. And they have actually been a benefit to democracies, right? And what they basically say is that the public sphere requires that a certain range of voices and issues and values be present and that the way we're going to set the terms around what is to be present is going to be set through political and policy debate within the context of a democracy and the rule of law, as opposed to basically abdicating those decisions to the platforms, self-governance, voluntaristic efforts, and philanthropy. These are just not going to cut it. But Dwayne, isn't that, I mean, in, in that kind of regime, sorry, George, push on this point, then I'll give it back to you. Absolutely no problem. I mean, if you have that kind of regime, then Donald Trump would have had the authority to require Twitter and Facebook to carry him and his incitement. You know, I, I think that in the United States, at least our First Amendment would protect us from that because Twitter and Facebook have free speech rights as well. The right as George does to decide who to have on his show and not to be compelled to take someone. Mm. Uh, I'm worried about, about a bad player in the United States with Trump, in Hungary, in Poland, in the Philippines, where if the platforms are required by such precedent to carry official speech, they can also carry hatred, incitement, and all kinds of bad things that Facebook gets accused of having carried in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, I think we have to make a, a distinction between good democratic governments and bad authoritarian inclined uh, That's hard to do, though, governments. once you have a precedent in a worldwide company. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think, I think we can make those distinctions, and I think we're able to recognize a democracy when we see one. And unfortunately, we get ourselves, we do uh, find difficulties when you're living in a, a society that is sliding towards authoritarian political rule like you had under the Trump administration. You know, I think the United States has a problem with free speech. And I think that the United States would, we could take care of a lot of these issues if the United States itself had a kind of, how do I say this in a non-pejorative way, a grown-up discussion about the bounds of freedom of expression. I mean, I'm quite happy with the with the kind of European, Canadian, international human rights 
standards for freedom of expression and opinion and other human rights, which is basically that we all have these rights um, subject to limits established through the rule of law and that are compatible with a democratic society and as overseen by an independent judiciary. You know, I don't think we can we can hold the rest of the world hostage to, you know, the American constitutional setup for freedom of expression and the particular case that we just mercifully got through in which, you know, the kind of fair carriage must carry idea that I'm talking about is held hostage and, you know, off made out of bounds by, you know, the idea that Trump is lurking in the background. Thank God this guy's no longer, you know, center stage. Well, there there we will disagree, but I'll head it back to you, Jordan. I think deciding between this rock and that hot place is going to take a long time and hopefully not the 200 years that you spoke of regarding the newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, in my next question, I think Dwayne went into it a bit uh, regarding the global scene. So PM Morrison has already spoken to Indian Prime Minister Modi and Canada's Trudeau. And these countries, along with EU, are being seen as the next in line to come up with some sort of regulation for tech and uh, particularly social media. You had uh, spoken, Dwayne, of uh, the inquiries that have happened here in India and multiple countries. And you had also spoken about Canada's position a bit. Jeff, uh, why don't you come in on what are the do's and don'ts that these countries can pick up from this Australian episode? My fear, and Dwayne touched on this with less extreme language that I'm about to use, is that we are seeing in media and politics a moral panic uh, in which these challenged old institutions are trying to find a boogeyman on whom to blame all of society's problems. As if in the United States, we were all in great harmony and, and wonder uh, until the internet came along, which of course is not the case. And so that moral panic then gives license to do things that in an otherwise sane world wouldn't occur. And I, and I think that we're going to hurt ourselves in how we treat the internet and including, I would say, speech upon it. I'm, in the United States, it's very important for me to point out that it's only because of social media that we have Black Lives Matter and the hashtag Living While Black and as well as the hashtag Me Too that the voices too long not heard in mainstream media run by people who look like me, old white men, are now finally being heard. And part of the problem we have is that the old voices resent the presence of those voices at the table. And so I'm very protective of the net and the speech that it enables as a result. And thus, I get into a moral panic about the moral panic going on. I get scared about that. So when we have uh, governments joining together to fight the wind of the internet, when it's Morrison talking to Modi and to Trudeau, when it's Merkel and, and Macron uh, complaining about the fact that Twitter took Trump down, uh, I think we see old institutions, old governments that are also challenged by the internet, taking advantage, convenient advantage of the moral panic in media, and they're trying to stop a wind that I don't think can be stopped. I'm not a technological determinist. I'm not saying that there is a, a given outcome here, but I am saying that I think we have to let this go where it is. In 1990, I think six it was, there was a paper from the uh, Rand Corporation by James Dewar that said that the, the countries that tried to control print, that tried to stop it, or tried to license it, were left behind for a long time in history as a result. His argument was that there are going to be unintended consequences. We don't know what this is yet, but his argument was, let's get to the unintended consequences sooner so we can then figure out what to do. Instead, what I see governments doing is thinking they know enough to control the net from what little they know now. We don't know what the internet is yet. It is, it is yet young. First 50 years of print were reinventing the scribe's work. Uh, it wasn't until the 1500s that we started to understand what a book could be and what it looks like now. And again, it was 150 years before you got newspapers and then 250 before copyright. It took a very long time to understand what this is. And, and, and at 150 years, it wasn't just newspapers that were invented. It was also the modern novel 
and the essay and a market for printed plays. There was a rush of innovation that took that long to come so that people understood what print could be and started inventing with it. And so I just argue that I get very, very nervous when governments gang together to try to control what is fundamentally a platform for speech. They thus try to control that speech. And yes, here I am an American and I do believe in the First Amendment and I'm going to hang tight on this as much as I tried to move to Canada twice. The one thing I would lose if I went there is our First Amendment and my belief in the sanctity and the value of the public conversation and freedom of expression. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Dwayne, would you like to expand on what you said earlier or uh, anything new on the do's and don'ts for the countries? Yeah, sure. So, you know, let me just, again, I'll respond to some of the points that uh, Jeff says. And, you know, it's funny because on some points, I think Jeff and I are actually, we we share a lot of ideas and I know I'm getting pilloried for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're we're in the same boat there. Yes, I think so. (laughs) But, you know, so when you speak about moral panics, I think you're right. I think people have lost their freaking minds around this issue and they, you know, they refuse to recognize that we have had a crisis of democracy for the last half a century. Thank you and amen. Yes. The moral panic, I think, is doing the debates around what needs to be done a huge disservice. And so too are the one-sided and myopic uh, academics leaning in who are holding their nose about the fact that, you know, Rupert Murdoch and Fox News are the hubs of a, you know, right-wing network propaganda system that has fundamentally polluted the pool of public knowledge and the public sphere and is a scourge uh, for democracies in around the world. And, you know, we don't have a Murdoch outlet in Canada, but we still get the spillover. Okay, so we need to, I think, uh, have more than a one note song. Now, here's where I think Jeff and I part ways, though, because I'm okay with with regulation uh, in democratic societies. And I believe that, you know, since the rise of industrial capitalism uh, in the late 19th century through the last 150 years, you know, there is no such thing as a free market uh, unsullied by state interventions. The state fundamentally intervenes in the market and society. And the question is whether that's for good or for bad or by a democratic state or an undemocratic uh, state and whether or not um, the interventions are subject to proper uh, oversight by a democratic culture as well as the rule of law. Okay, and I don't think it helps us in this debate to talk generically about the Internet. The debate is not so much when we get serious about the policy debates and the public inquiries that are taking place in the Macron and Merkel's uh, views of the world. It's not so much about the Internet, Swedes and Eris. It's about GAFAM Plus. All right. And it's about this idea that the Internet itself has been hijacked by a small group of companies that are essentially rewiring the internet. They are substituting their own proprietary technical standards, interfaces, and codes uh, for the earlier generation of shared and open technical protocols that defined the so-called open internet. They've completely remade the internet around their own walled gardens, and they control the currency upon which the walled garden version of the internet works, that is, audience data as well as the money underpinning the so-called free internet, that is advertising. That's the real crux here. And as I said earlier, they are not only remaking the internet in their image by substituting their their own proprietary, mutually exclusive technical standards and interface, right? What some people are calling the platformization of the web. We should look at the work of Ann Hellman uh, on this, for example, or a friend of mine, David Nyborg uh, here in Canada, right? We have seen their increased centralization of the internet bring about an internet of entertainment ruled by a few search engines, a handful of social media services, and digital content aggregation platforms like Netflix, Amazon Video, Apple App Store, Google Play, and so on. And this rewiring of the internet around the centralized core group of internet giants was originally done for their own business purposes, right? And to bring about 
the online advertising system, hyper-targeted ads, the surveillance capitalism model, as Shoshana Zuboff uh, talks about. And the problem is, is that this this internet that we now have isn't the internet we once had, and it's been rewired for control. That control was originally for commercial purposes, but it's been hijacked for disinformation operations and to fan the flames of political polarization, to promote hate speech, misogynistic abuse, terrorist propaganda, all the stuff that gives rise to the moral panic, you know, I think is for real, but we need to rein in the moral panic. Well, my last point on this um, or two last points here. You know, I think what we have today is, you know, we have an original promise that the internet would be a technology of freedom, the harbinger of a fourth wave of democracy. That has fallen apart. And in fact, we've seen democracy now in retreat worldwide, according to Freedom House, for over a decade. I think that it's 14 straight years in a row. All right. So the internet is not a technology of democracy. And then last point, you know, going to Jeff's uh, point about Merkel and Macron, I too am very uneasy about private corporate actors being having the power to deplatform the world's most powerful politician, the U.S. president. I loathe Donald Trump. I cannot underscore how much I loathe Donald Trump. But it seems to me that he is an index of a bigger problem. And he's also a warning to Americans that something is fundamentally wrong with the conception of freedom of speech that does not draw boundaries around the kinds of speech that are basically an assault on people and an assault on the public sphere and an assault on democracy. You cannot have a democracy uh, in which the most powerful actors in that democracy systematically launch an assault on that democracy. There must be a means, an institutional arrangement by which those assaults on democracy can be brought to heel. And I think this is critical, not left at the mercy of a handful of private corporations to, de to determine the life and death of democracy, right? Thankfully, you know, and this is to the credit of Twitter, for example, you know, Facebook was begrudging and late to the game, you know, but, you know, mercifully, Twitter and Facebook finally got to the right place and deplatformed Trump, okay? But that, to my mind, is incredibly dangerous spot to be in. And I think we, you know, with, with if we can have a new generation of internet regulation steeped in public interest, values, human rights, and the institutional arrangements and norms of democracy, we are going to be far better off for it than uh, where we are now. Dwayne's right that we agree in many, in many ways, though I'm going to, I'd like to turn his last analysis just for a second on its head there. I think that the fall of democracy is not the result of the internet. It's the opposite. It is the institutions reacting to the democratization that the internet brings. I come back always to Black Lives Matter. We see, I think, nothing less than finally a racial reformation going on. It's been going on for 400 years, but the internet enabled Black Lives Matter, enabled it to take off in a way worldwide that hadn't happened before. And what we see from Trump and Murdoch and company is the counter-reformation. And that, to me, is the root of the fall of democracy. So quick, quickly, just to, you know, I think this is, this is, this is a really important uh, point, I think, that we're on right now. So I'll just say one thing here. You know, I don't believe uh, that the internet uh, is a vehicle for delivering uh, democracy, okay? I believe that we can have an internet that, helps to enable democracy or helps to undermine it. And I think the, you know, the kind of the proof in the pudding, so to speak, is, is a quote or is a kind of reference I made earlier to the work of Freedom House. And there are others, you know, reporters without borders and so on around the world that have looked, you know, including George at India and the relationship between media ownership, concentration and democracy. 
And what they've been finding now for you know over a decade, a decade and a half, is that democracy is actually in reverse around the world. You know, the late 90s or the 1990s were an era in which many people talked about a fourth wave of democracy after the crumbling of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of Central and Eastern Europe and kind of democratization in African countries and in South Asia, all right, um, as well as the post-authoritarian societies in, in uh, South America, Latin America, all right. It was an era of uh, of increasing potential, all right. But already in the background, we had, you know, 20 years in the Western capitalist democracies, this idea that democracy was in crisis, all right. And democracy was not in a good shape in the 1990s, all right. The internet came along and it suggested that maybe things could get better. I don't think that we can say that it has, okay? But that's not to blame the internet. I am not blaming the internet for dragging down democracy. I'm saying that democracy's fortunes and fate rise and fall on a much broader set of considerations than uh, the internet, no matter how important and powerful this particular uh, technology is, okay? And what I'm saying is now we need to kind of engage with this very important communications medium and try to put our thumbs on the scale in favor of more democratic outcomes. And I'll just quickly go back to the Australian example, you know, and all of the caveats that we said, and I have more criticisms of the Australian proposal if anybody wants to listen, but, you know, in the round, you know, I think the important thing is, is that the Australian proposal shows us, A, that governments can act, okay, B, that the, that the nub of the problem here is concentration, all right? Where the Australian code needs to go is to recognize that there's concentration in more than just the digital platforms. Concentration is an endemic problem to communications media across the board, and their country is, is, it, is Exhibit A, and Rudd and Turnbull's push recognizes that. And if the country was truly committed to, and the current right-wing liberal national government was really committed to public interest-oriented internet regulation fit for a democracy, they would be pushing on all levers to deal with concentration across the board, okay? Here, we've just got a one-dimensional uh, intervention whose origins are circumspect. But if we put that aside, there have been a lot of bright minds brought to the table on this. I know many good uh, Australian academics who have played an active role in this, and I think have helped the commission and its lead, Roger uh, Sims, um, who I believe to be a decent person. He's not part of the government. He is a bureaucrat, a, you know, uh, a career public servant, and they've come up with something not bad. It deals with one part of concentration, and it also promises to open up the black box, and fundamentally, it gets at the problem about the, date, the data and who controls the data, okay, upon which the online advertising system is based. But here we've run into another problem. Instead of trying to rein in the kind of surveillance capital model of data harvesting, unlimited data harvesting, all right, and minimize data collection uh, so that you know only data that is required to uh, uh, provide services is gathered. All right, what the Australian model does is basically it says it you know that basically the domestic media should get a bigger slice of the big data pie. It basically gives government blessing to the surveillance capitalism model and tries to you know bring in the Australian media companies. Uh, you know, into a, a better spot at the table and a bigger slice of the pie. I think this is a problem. And so when Canada looks at things and when the United States looks at things and India looks at things, my hope is that they can look at Australia, they can cherry pick the good bits to it and try to extricate um, efforts in each of these countries from all the problems that uh, one finds in the Australian model. Okay, thanks, Duane. I think sort of running out of time. So I would want to sort of conflate my last two questions together and towards the end, come down from the realm of ideas to more practical concerns. So one of the top downloaded apps in Australia now is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's news app. 
And that is being touted as an example of how newspapers can uh, make this an opportunity to build a direct audience and not depend on news aggregators and social media. However, not all news outlets may have the resources to do this. There are smaller news outlets. And also these news outlets might be isolating a percentage of the audience that has known news only through social media. It might be a younger audience. So where do the smaller media players stand in this Australia Facebook standoff as well as what about uh, journalism itself? What is the best outcome for smaller players as well as journalism itself here? If you can have a quick answer to such a large question. Uh, Jeff, why don't you go on this? One of my fears about this kind of legislation is that it delays the inevitability of media companies finally learning what they have to learn about this world. And so it's great that the ABC in Australia uh, has a popular app and is getting an audience there, but that also relies on the old model of media, that media were the destinations. You had to come to us. And I think we've got to learn the lesson that uh, social media taught us. We've got to go elsewhere. Facebook was not built for news. Our readers took news there because they wanted a place to discuss it. Twitter was not built for news. Witnesses chose to share what they saw there because news didn't do that. The news industry didn't create an ecosystem-wide view of news. Google News did that. And the United States next door enables neighbors to get together and talk to each other. Well, why the heck didn't local newspapers do that? You know, and, and the so-called surveillance capitalism that Dwayne talks about, and I've got to say I, I object to that coinage by Shoshana Zuboff, because I think it, it, it uh, offensively um, uh, dilutes the power uh, that government holds to truly surveil people. We see what's going on in Russia right now. Uh, getting a cookie on your browser to say that you like uh, boots because you looked at a boot ad is not surveillance. And indeed, this is the model that mass media developed. And so to me, what needs to happen here is that we've got to reinvent our fundamental model. All that's happened in the early days of the internet is that the platforms took mass media's own attention-based advertising business model and did a better job of it and thus got our customers away. And that wasn't money that God gave us. It was competition. Uh, but advertising as an attention-based model uh, is uh, inefficient and insulting and bothersome and ridiculous. It's not surveillance, but it's a pain and it needs to be reinvented. And so media properties have to understand, in my view, that they are not in the business of making a product called content. Journalism is a service. And I think it has to fundamentally rethink its role in the public conversation. Indeed, because I have tenure at my university, I can do obnoxious things like this. I work under a new definition of journalism and a new mission, which is to convene communities into respectful, informed, and productive conversation. I wish that were a mission that Facebook would share, by the way. But I don't think our mission is to make a product called content and then sell our audience to advertisers. That's what we did for a century. That's what the platforms are doing now. We all have to imagine a different future to support a quality public conversation. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Dwayne, what's your take on this? I think the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the kind of the news that's broke out over the weekend about ABC being, you know, Australian Broadcasting Corporation being the number one downloaded app uh, on the App Store, you know, I think that's, that's very interesting. This idea that somehow media organizations in general and news media organizations more specifically have become too dependent on the platforms and they've lost control over their audiences, over the data, over the advertising system and their own uh, content. Uh, this is a big problem. And I think that's what the Australian case tries to, tries to deal with. Going to the next point that you raised, uh, George, about the, you know, the small players. What do we make about the small players? Well, I think it's very interesting and, and, and telling that the early drafts of the news bargaining code bill basically did not apply to small commercial media outlets or 
to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation or SBS. And that's one more telltale sign of just how in the pocket the original design of this legislation was to the big commercial media mogul uh, moguls in Australia. Here I'm thinking mostly Kerry uh, uh, Stokes and of course the Rupert Murdoch thing. In terms of future of news, you know, and future of journalism, you know, I think I heard a little bit of James Carey in Jeff's indeed, discussion there. Indeed, you did. <laughs> so, you know, and I think that's that's an important point, an important way to kind of shift the way we think about uh, the role of journalism, you know, and cultivating a society's awareness of itself as such, right? And as a public and giving expression to the things that we uh, must share, not because they're necessarily good things, but because we live in complex world in which we are forced to interact and be interdependent with one another. This is the nature of, you know, a risk society. And so we need a formal mechanism that help us navigate this complex risk-laden world. And Jeff's conception of, of news drawing on Kerry, I think hits that well. I think you know, just just to continue to play the game that I think we've been playing along here, Jeff, uh, and in a fun way, you know, to break yeah. way with Jeff here again, I think we have to go another step, though. And I think we have to realize that journalism has always been a public good. And I mean a public good, not in the normative sense, but in an economic sense. And by that, I mean, historically, the general public has never ever paid the full freight of a general journalistic or news service. And it's always had to be subsidized. It's either been subsidized by wealthy patrons, by uh, governments in democratic societies through the public service media system, like the CBC here in Canada, BBC in the UK, you know, or advertising, right? So now that the advertising subsidy is falling away from journalism, I think we have to recognize as a part of public policy that guess what advertising was never a virtuous means of subsidizing the general availability and production circulation of news to begin with and can we come up with some form of public subsidies and i know this is extremely difficult but i also know that it's been done for you know a half a century in some european countries and that you know, there are mixed results. That is, some are good, some are not so good. Okay, but this is an area that is worth tilling. And I would recommend that we do that. Thanks, Dwayne. I think that brings us to the end of our conversation here. It has been a very lively and enriching one. And I think the Hindus audience will be left much the better for it. The ideas that have been discussed as to showcase the the experience and the thought that both of you have given to this particular subject. Uh, so thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Dwayne, for uh, joining us here. It has been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. Uh, it's really great to uh, get to meet you, George, and great to uh, speak with you, Jeff, as well. And Let me first thank you both, too. It was really a enjoyable conversation.